it's it's interesting because it does take so many different fields pulling in from statistics from uh, computer science machine learning ai pulling in from the the domain side so you know endocrinology or cardiology or whatever the domain is that we're working in or virology to me it fits perfectly within this paradigm of biomedical engineering which is not just this one thing but it's kind of an amalgamation of different fields that you bring together to build something greater than the sum of its parts. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. I know we've been gone for a few weeks, but we actually just finished graduation and we took a little bit of time off, but we are back and better than ever. Yeah, back in business. <laughs> we had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Jesslyn Dunn today. Yeah, Dr. Dunn is an assistant professor with appointments in the biomedical engineering department, the electrical and computer engineering department, as well as in biostatistics and bioinformatics. Yeah, Rohan and I actually took Dr. Dunn's class, uh, I guess like, what was it, two semesters ago? Yeah, um, our senior fall, uh, and the course is entitled Biomedical Data Science, so. Yeah, I, I learned a ton in that class, and that really shaped my uh, interest like moving forward. I didn't really know very much about biomedical data science before, but moving forward, I definitely think that's a field that I am personally interested in. Yeah, and it's interesting because as you hear in the episode, I think uh, it's interesting to hear how Dr. Dunn's research interests have evolved over the years. She started out doing basic science research and she moved to computational biology. And I, I really like that too. I like to see that you can start in one area and just follow your interests and follow what you think is useful and move towards that direction in the future of your career. Yeah, and it, it's exciting, as you mentioned that, Becky, because she is constantly learning new things. It seems like every month we see a new article um, that Dick publishes about a novel idea that her and her team had about using wearable technology, which is something that she's especially passionate about. Yeah, the, the most popular one that you like recently is probably the one about COVID, which we talk about uh, in the episode as well, about her or her work using tr uh, wearables to track and, and detect COVID. Yeah, so this is a packed episode. Uh, we really hope you enjoy. So Dr. Dunn, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us today. Uh, I want to get started by asking about how you come up with ideas when you're doing your own work. So in your own personal research, when you're sitting there thinking about a new direction to take in your own research, what method do you really use to come up with these new avenues or ideas to explore? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of it is reading, um, reading, not just the scientific literature, but also um, pop sci, um, the news, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on in the world. And sometimes if we're so entrenched in just what's going on in kind of our own field, we miss how our field can impact the bigger picture. And so I think, you know, a lot of the inspiration I get actually comes from outside of science um, and is, is more about what I'm reading in, um, you know, on blogs or in the news. Um, and it's, it's inspiring to feel like we can do something that can actually have a broader impact outside of our field. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, uh, especially during the past year or so, it seems like every few months, Duke has an article about you, publishes an article about you and your team having 
um, employed wearable technology to identify or help track a, a disease in like some new way or to some novel application of, of wearables. Is that sort of the same process that underlies um, that kind of research that you and your team does? And I guess, how do you distinguish things? You know, if you have an idea for a novel application for wearables, how do you distinguish between things that um, you think might work that people have never done before and things that um, perhaps aren't possible that are just out there? Yeah, so, you know, we have a certain domain areas that we start out in. Um, so my background actually is, is not digital health. Digital health wasn't really sort of a field when I started out my um my PhD work and um, and was kind of just burgeoning as I was doing my postdoc. Um, so my background really is in more of cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. And so that's kind of a crux of where a lot of the ideas for our work comes from because I did a lot of work with uh, large biomolecular data sets and understanding how um, they play a role in pathophysiology. And so the way that I think about wearables is it's almost just a different mode of measurement to develop a biomarker for a pathophysiology. Um, and so I think, you know, when thinking about will, is there a potential for this idea to work? It has to be rooted in the domain knowledge of, of the diseases. So there are some diseases that we work on that I may not have expertise in but we have a collaborator who brings an idea to us, or we have an idea and say, this seems like it should work. Let's go find somebody who's an expert in this field and run the idea by them. Um, so it's really rooted in the physiology and in understanding what types of things can we measure and how those might be related to or predictive of a disease state. That's awesome. I Both of us took your data science class uh, I guess two semesters ago, and I remember you drilling into us the, the importance of domain knowledge um, in data science as well. Uh, you, you just mentioned, and we were talking about this before, you did your PhD at Georgia Tech um, in a more molecular type of science rather than your data science that you work in now. What was, was it like a major turning point where you kind of realized one day, okay, I'm, I'm moving from the lab, the wet lab, I guess, to uh, more computational research, or was it a gradual process? Yeah, so, you know, I, I would almost think that the, the journey goes all the way back to my undergraduate research. Um, I was working in a wet lab, doing sort of more of systems biology research, understanding how modifications to a single protein can sort of change the trajectory of a pathway and thinking about how, you know, we know that there's so much else going on in the system. So when we ha have these small perturbations, we're only looking under you know, that, that analogy of the street lamp, right? If we lose our keys and we only search under the street lamp, we're missing all the other places we can be looking. Um, and so I didn't love that sort of single pathway approach. I wanted to get into this more multi-pathway, multi-omics approach. Um, and so when I went to Georgia Tech, that was my goal was to work with multi-omics data sets. And as it turned out, the project that I was working on, the needed additional data collected. And so my goal was initially to dive in and just work with existing data sets and kind of go more toward that modeling and computational work, but the data wasn't there. And so it was, it was kind of a unique opportunity to really understand the data pipeline all the way from the beginning to the end. Um, so I worked with cells and mice. I 
was, you know, coming into the, the wet lab, doing a lot of the um, sort of hands-on work that I think a, a lot of people in the biosciences do, um, but always thinking toward, okay, I'm waiting just to get this data. Like all of this is to the point of, I want to analyze the data that comes out of this. Um, and so eventually a couple years in, I did finally get these large data sets that I had been trying to collect. Um, and as I got them, it became really clear that the skills that I had weren't insufficient to be able to do what I wanted to do with the data. So I started taking more classes, um, more in the bioinformatics and statistics space, um, trying to pick up the skills that I needed. And uh, along the way, you know, I ended up basically having sort of a subspecialty in bioinformatics. Um, so I, I think that was kind of the clear transition point when I got a large data set in my hands and I said, I don't even know how to open this data set, how to access this data set. It's like, okay, there's a whole field here that I need to acquaint myself with. Um, and I loved it. It was a blast. Um, the wet lab was just not for me. So getting into computational work, it just felt like the right fit. I, I can relate to the, the wet lab not being for me. Um, <laughs> that, that sounds like it takes a lot of courage. It seems like it's kind of scary to switch fields at that point in your career. I mean, early on, do you have any advice for anyone who is either in their PhD or early on in their career and feels like, you know, what I'm doing right now isn't right for me. I need to make a switch um, to a different, I guess, subfield or completely new field in general. Yeah, so, so I will say for me that the switch didn't feel that abrupt. I think because there was that common thread of, you know, why I was going from this wet lab to dry lab, it was the same project. Um, it was just a different skill set, a different way of tackling things. Um, it, it felt to me like the next logical step. Um, but that being said, I think my transition to computational work would have been much faster had I, I not had kind of that sort of progressive transition. Um, and I think that there's benefits to both. Um, you know, being really honest with yourself and saying like, these are the things that I enjoy on a day to day and these are the things that I don't enjoy. And I think at any point in life, being willing to sort of look at, at your life and your day to day and saying like, does this fit with what I wanna be doing? Um, you know, the answer, some days may totally be no, um, but that's okay because we all have days like that. But in the bigger picture, if that's continuing on, um, it's, it's a good time to kind of reassess. Um, and I don't think there's any point in life where it's too late to reassess and pivot and try something new. If you're passionate about what you're doing, you're gonna succeed. So it, it can feel scary to try something new, but it's also, you know, um, life is short. So you might as well try to pack what you can into it. Yeah, and, and even today when you're trying to learn something new, I mean, you mentioned um, back then it was sort of through classes, but how do you go about learning new things right now? I mean, how do you balance that with research? Yeah, as a professor, I'm finding time is much more limited uh, <laughs> than it was in previous positions. So. Um, you know, one thing I would really encourage you all as you're continuing in your education is to really take advantage of the fact that you, you have fewer administrative tasks that you need to do that kind of grab your attention in other directions. And that's a really nice time where you can sit with an article and, you know, focus for a few hours without getting your attention distracted somewhere else. 
that's something that I really miss. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm working to learn how to carve out time for that, but it's a challenge. There's no doubt. Um, I think, you know, there's kind of the, the typical ways of, of having the, the journals that I subscribe to sending me the email updates and scanning through titles and seeing kind of what interests me. Um, but also just, you know, reading outside of my field. If, if I see something that comes up in the Duke daily news, that looks interesting. I like to take some time to read that also. Um, but definitely time is more limited now. Yeah. And, and a quick question about sort of how you decide what to read, right? I mean, you mentioned you read from a, what it sounds like a broad range of subjects, but sometimes I find there's just so much out there that it's just like, you know, how, how do you go about deciding like specifically what you want to read? Right. Because I mean, you could just sit there all day and just be reading articles. Totally. I think the FOMO term really applies to the literature, right? It's, it's impossible <laughs> to, to be sort of updated on everything. And there's always this fear that, you know, I'm reading something and I'm missing out on something else. Um, because it, it is a trade-off, right? You have to choose how to spend your time. So I think part of it is, is being willing to quit uh, when you, you know, start reading the first paragraph. If you're like, this is just not grabbing my attention, put it away, grab something else that is, um, you know, that's, that's piquing your interest. Um, for things that are really in my field, sometimes I have to kind of scrape my way through things that are less exciting or interesting to me because it's something that I just need to be familiar with um, for my own work. Um, but in general, for, for broad reading, if an article is not written in an attention-grabbing way um, or if the topic is not something that I find exciting, I'll maybe read a couple sentences and then move on to the next one. Um, so that's definitely not the way to become an expert, but it is a way to at least have a broad hold on kind of what's going on outside of my specific field. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard for me to, I'm like a person who likes to check things off the list and it's very hard for me to stop reading something after I started if I don't finish it. Um, but I definitely need to get more into that mentality to, to get more through, through more interesting things that, that pique my interest. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier about the emphasis on the day-to-day. -day. What is your, and how that's kind of changed as you've taken up a role as a, you're a PI now and a professor. Uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like now? That's a good question. Well, it, it's very different in the summer uh, versus the academic year. So in the academic year, I'm teaching um, usually two days a week. So there's a lot of time that goes into preparing lectures, um, preparing coursework, those sorts of things, and then the actual teaching time. Um, and then meetings with students, meetings with collaborators, um, ideally finding some time to write papers, grants. Um, and then there's a lot of little odds and ends uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, keeping your house clean or something, right? It's like things just pop up and you have to keep addressing them and kind of making sure that everything's running smoothly. Um, so, so I think a lot of the day-to-day -day consists of that. I like that analogy, keeping your house clean. I haven't heard that one before, but I guess that's a really like good insight into what it's like to manage all that um, together. It seems like, you know, especially from taking your class that you, you really enjoy mentoring. Has, has that been a big part of what you enjoy about being a professor in addition to your research? Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the most gratifying pieces. Um, 
I love working with students, um, especially people who are, you know, really passionate about wanting to make the future a better place and kind of recognizing problems, but not feeling jaded and that these problems aren't addressable, but rather it's something that students seem to have more energy and excitement to address. And that's really a thrill for me because I think that's the attitude that's going to get us to a better future. So um, for me, it's just, it's a pleasure to work with students and to mentor students. That, that's right in line with, I guess, the name of your lab, right? From what we saw online, it's called the Big Ideas Lab. Can you tell us a bit how you came up with that? Like, how did that fall into place? So it actually stands for something. So okay. uh, scientists are notorious for these awful acronyms. <laughs> and I got a lot of flack for this one. Um, but it actually stands for the Biomedical Informatics Group, um, Integrating Data Engineering and Analytics. So That's awesome. That's so awesome. It describes what we do um, and we want to apply it to big ideas. So, um, you know, as as agonizing as these acronyms can be, I think that it's, it's a lot of fun to think about how it all fits together. I'm always so impressed how people are able to take these really long acronyms and, and form them into something that is like comprehensible and makes sense. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And speaking on one of the big ideas that I guess your team had recently was um, the Cove Identify project. Could you tell us a little bit more about what went into that? Um, and, you know, obviously it took a lot of, I guess, um, initiative to just jump on that when, when the pandemic started. Uh, could you tell us how that, I guess, started from the very beginning? Yeah. Um, so, so the idea actually kind of came about naturally stemming from the work that I had done as a postdoc at Stanford, um, where I had developed these sort of anomaly detection algorithms from wearables data. Um, and we showed that that, that was able to detect um, health issues, including viral illness in a, a healthy population um, that just had some natural perturbations taking place. And so the challenge with that study was that it was about 100 people that we had tracked for Think about five years. Um, and over that time, maybe we had eight or nine people total who got some sort of an infection like the flu or a cold. And um, we were just waiting for these to occur naturally. And, and still we had such limited data. So when we were trying to build these algorithms that could be, you know, a population level detection of an infection, it was like, well, we really need a lot more data. So I had a student actually who was a summer student in my lab and then um, was uh, studying his, for his undergraduate degree in Wuhan. And he was telling me about the things that were going on there. And it just, it was that obvious click that like, this is the data that we need. Um, and it wasn't clear at that point because this was, I, I wanna say back in December, January, um, before you know, we, we knew that coronavirus had kind of arrived on our shores, um, we started talking about like, if we were to, to make this happen, collect all that data, what would that look like? Um, and we just started kind of brainstorming ideas. And, and, and as we were in that process, the cases started to pop up here. Um, it started out in you know, the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, um, cases started to come through to New York. And as that was happening, we were developing our infrastructure. Um, you know, I, I wish that the infrastructure had been in place faster. There were a lot of challenges. And when I say infrastructure, it's not just the computational pieces, but also the 
the regulatory approvals. Uh, there's a lot there that takes a lot of time typically. Um, that really slowed us down. And so I think we had probably the capacity to do even more than we got done in this process um, had that piece moved faster. But, you know, it, it just, it seems like an obvious next step to us, I guess. So that, that was kind of what we did. We just, and, and I was so impressed with the folks in my lab, everybody pitched in, put their heads down and said, we're gonna make this happen. And it was really a, hugely a team effort. How did that look like on a day-to-day? Yeah, you know, it, it sounds like so many people um, in your lab were involved. You just sort of have like these brainstorm sessions, like with everyone there, or do you sort of like meet with people one-on-one and say, you know, like, go do this, like, come back to me. Like, you know, how does that look like? Yeah, so I think at the beginning, it was it was more about uh, delegating specific tasks because there was so much to do. We had the institutional review board, the IRB approvals, we had privacy and security office approvals. Uh, we had to actually develop the infrastructure and identify who had the skill sets to do that. So, you know, there were probably smaller sync ups with um, the, the overall lab. And then we got to more specific group meetings that we would have depending on what piece of the project we were working on on any given day. Um, we also expanded out to a Bass Connections project. So we had a larger team that came on to address some of the issues once we got the project up and running. So once we were confident that we could get the data that we needed, that we were able to enroll people, then we felt comfortable saying, okay, this can be sort of a symbiotic relationship between us and a student team where students can help us refine our app, refine our database, and um, they can learn how to deal with a lot of the data science challenges that come along with a project like this. As demonstrated by that by this project, you your research is really neat in the sense that I feel like it's very close to the application. Um, unlike, for example, like drug development, where you could be working on a problem for 20 years and not see uh, impact on the patients or the individuals, I feel like the work that you do is very close to being um, implemented in an attack. Can you tell me a bit more about the challenges that you have being so close to um, implementing uh, your algorithms and, and your work on actual individuals? Yeah, so so it's exciting, right? Because it is it is cool to be able to actually see things going from um, the bench to bedside rapidly. Um, but it moves fast because we're not developing a technology that is going to take years to develop. A lot of these are commercially available devices that we use the data from that with every six months to a year, a new iteration of that device comes out. So there's a lot of data science challenges to handling um, data coming from different distributions, which with every new version of a device, even with software updates that get pushed to these devices, we're having to kind of try to build these into the models that that we're developing. Um, So I think the pace of this field is a challenge. And the other piece is the regulatory and lack of regulatory environment. So because it's such a a new area, it is a little bit of a wild west. So in a lot of ways, standards are still being developed. There are places where um, standards that don't exist are still being identified as a need to develop. 
Um, and so that can also be really challenging because when we're working in a space where there aren't clear definitions, we have to ask ourselves, do we need to make the definition for this thing in order to move ahead in our research? And sometimes the answer to that is yes. Um, so we've actually been partnered really closely with the Digital Medicine Society, um, the Dime Society, um, and they're doing a lot of work in that space, but bridging the gap between researchers and regulatory folks. Um, so right now we have an initiative called the Data CC that um, is essentially uh, linking between researchers and folks in industry and digital health with the FDA to talk about what, what do these regulatory concerns look like? How do they affect the research side? How do they affect the implementation side? And what can we build now with our, our foresight on, on what the future is going to look like? And the pandemic was a great example of how um, digital health tools were being used without proper verification and validation, and in some cases leading people to conclusions that weren't accurate. And that's really scary when it, uh, it comes to your health. So there's a lot to do. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of what you're describing right now is very similar. We spoke to Dr. Missy Cummings uh, a few months ago, and for your, your description of how the, the field is progressing so fast that the regulatory agencies are just having trouble keeping up. Um, so what you're describing with uh, digital health right now is very similar, I think, to the um, AI and, and automation industry as well. Uh, like Historically, I guess BME has been really focused initially on electrophysiology, moving to imaging, and then like cellular engineering with CRISPR. Um, and right now, I think like the new huge next big thing is um, working with big data and data science. Uh, have you noticed, have you kind of like felt like you're part of this big, big push into incorporating more statistics and data science into the field of biomedical engineering? I think so. Um, it's, it's interesting because it does take so many different fields, right? Where, you know, pulling in from um, statistics from uh, computer science, machine learning, AI, pulling in from the, the domain side. So, you know, endocrinology or cardiology or whatever the domain is that we're working in or virology. Um, and, and so it is interesting because to me, it fits perfectly within this paradigm of biomedical engineering, which is not just this one thing, but it's kind of an amalgamation of different fields that you bring together to build something greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and, you know, people say that the data revolution is really touching everything. And I think that's true in, in BME also. Something that, that we know about BME is that we're always adjusting to the, the technologies that exist, right? So as a new technology comes online, we want to take advantage of that to build better solutions. Um, and so it's a lot of fun to kind of see that revolution taking place. Um, the, you know, there are departments popping up in biomedical data science and biomedical informatics, but I think engineers really have a role to play in understanding how devices that generate data can relate to how we use that data in practice. So it, it's it's very cool to have BME playing a role here. Given such a broad field like as BME, do you find that, you know, on the note of comparing, I guess, more computationally oriented research to more like wet lab based research, do you find that there are things that are just easier? Like, for example, one thing that strikes me as just being naturally easier in computational research is like collaboration with people who 
you know, are, may not be in close proximity with you? Do you find um, your experience in computational research to like be more enjoyable or harder in some respects based on, you know, because your experience with wet lab research as well. So what sort of um, things did you realize um, or maybe you didn't expect about like that transition or how those two compare? Yeah, I think I, it was fascinating to me early on how different the languages are that, you know, the, the wet lab folks or the clinical folks and the computational folks speak. Um, and I think a lot gets lost in translation because of that. And so having experienced both sides of it, it can be a lot of fun because I, I can, I, I almost feel sometimes like I'm the translator between these two groups. Um, and I think a lot of cool work can get done that way because we can actually educate both sides. Um, you know, when uh, the, the, the clinical side is an understanding sort of where the computational limitations are or the computational folks aren't understanding some of the nuances to the data, um, it becomes a chance for us to not only try to educate both sides, but also to realize some of the, um, that the nuances actually affect the research. So whenever there's a difficulty with kind of explaining a concept or a principle, we go back to the basics. And sometimes that going back to the basics actually makes us question the basics. Um, and so I think that that can be a lot of fun because, you know, with like this, this skin tone study, for example, we, at the beginning, when we were using these wearable devices, we're taking for granted the fact that we assumed data coming off of the devices was accurate. And the more that we would dive down into these assumptions and the questions that we would get from either engineers or clinicians, we would say, you know, that's something that we're assuming, but the more that we dig into the literature, the less we're able to find evidence that, you know, during movement uh, under different skin tones, different sources of light that we can be confident that the measurements that we're getting are consistent and accurate. Um, so for those, just, who are, for those of our listeners who don't know, could you explain a bit more about what the skin tone study was? Sure. And so, so that study, we actually, we uh, pitted a bunch of devices head to head um, and wanted to see how they would perform against your um, clinical gold standard ECG under different circumstances. So there was a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that um, smartwatches weren't working as well for people who have darker skin or have tattoos on their wrists or have freckles or or a hairy uh, wrist or arm. And we wanted to check it out because there, there was no research published out there on whether this was an issue or not. Um, and there was also evidence that during different types of physical activity, the accuracy of the devices would change. So, um, you know, there were some obvious ones, like when somebody is running at a high acceleration, it's harder to get a clean heart rate as compared to somebody sitting still. But then there was the question of, well, if you're typing at your computer, your wrist is moving around a lot. So actually we're getting a lot of these motion artifacts. Um, is that affecting the heart rate measurement? Because it looks like somebody is kind of static with low movement. So you might assume that the measurements are accurate, but in fact, they may not be. And so we designed this study to check out all of these different circumstances with um, multiple consumer grade devices, research grade devices, and kind of try to see where are the sources of inaccuracy um, and how does that affect how we use this data in research studies and if we're to design um, digital endpoints for clinical trials, how would that affect these digital endpoints? 
Very cool. It, it kind of blows my mind that the companies who make these devices don't go through the same like rigorous research that you're describing right now. Do you think they do in their regulatory process and they just don't publish it? Or do you think it just wasn't done in the first place? Yeah, no, I, I think that they I think that they do go through a lot of rigorous testing. Um, so one of the big challenges is that there's not um, sort of clear guidance on for a, a digital health product like a smartwatch. And um, what is the evidence level necessary to say that this is accurate enough? So we have that FDA level of approval, but when we're talking about wellness devices or devices that aren't going under the FDA scrutiny, um, is there some level of evidence that's needed to be able to trust the product? So if we're thinking about using this product during exercise, for example, we see that a lot of people who have heart conditions may be relying on their smartwatch to tell them when they're in a heart rate range that is unsafe for them. People don't fully understand that these aren't FDA regulated products that, you know, the, the heart rate measurements may not be fully accurate. So there's no regulatory body that's saying that there needs to be evidence out there on the accuracy. And for a lot of these companies, there are pros and cons to releasing that data. Um, and so, you know, we have to think from a company standpoint of trying to maximize profit. And then the researcher standpoint of trying to really understand what's going on under the hood and how that incentive structure is kind of different, right? So, you know, our goal is that companies are more transparent. We've, we've seen, you know, Apple and Fitbit and um, Garmin and Samsung presenting at a lot of these conferences saying how they're putting out white papers. They're starting to really get more transparent about their testing. Um, but there's there's still you know very much misaligned incentives for doing that. So there's a gap here that needs to be filled for sure. It seems like with a lot of these projects, the ideal case would just to be you know would be not to have to rely on these commercially available devices, but like ha have your own. I guess be able to design your own device and do some like hardware design. Is that? I mean, that's obviously seems a lot harder than like software <laughs> uh, manipulation. Is that something that? you and your lab have considered? And do you think that's like a avenue that you might consider for like specific use cases of wearable devices in the future? So it's tricky because when we're going for our own hardware design, we lose scale. And so the, the, the beauty of a lot of the um, existing wearables is that they pass a lot of quality control checks that uh, they won't become waterlogged when somebody's swimming, you know, so, so they work really well in daily life. Um, whereas a lot of the research devices that we would develop wouldn't be able to perform well in at-home settings, longitudinal data collection, scaling up for a large number of people. So there's that usability factor. So we kind of have that trade-off that we have to think about. In my lab, we tend to go more for the existing technologies for that very reason. Um, that to get a, a piece of hardware to the point where you can run a large scale longitudinal study is just, it's very, very challenging. Um, and, and so one of the things that we found to be really effective is collaborating with industry and with other labs that do hardware development. So we can say, you know, we're finding this limitation with this product. 
do you see that there's something that that your team who has expertise and already has that hardware infrastructure developed um, can make the tweak and make it much faster and much more robust than our team would. So the collaborations there are really key. Is it ever frustrating, like, you know, if, uh, if a certain manufacturer like decides to remove a feature, for example, from like an Apple Watch or like something, like, is it ever frustrating that your research depends on like, I guess, what these huge companies want? Absolutely. Um, you know, a, a very real tangible example of that was, um, in my postdoc research, the uh, project that I mentioned where we were using smartwatches to um, detect uh, viral illness and other sorts of illnesses, um, we were using a device that I think was way ahead of its time. It was, uh, it was called the Basis Watch. And it was a small startup company in the Bay Area that got acquired by Intel. Um, and it, it had some issues that were not something that a large risk averse company was willing to take on and they shut the product down and it was right in the middle of our study we had to just do a data freeze and say we'll work with the data that we have collected in the past and from here on out it was actually it became a safety issue because they they had seen evidence that the the watches were causing burns in some people and we never experienced that in our study, but of course we had to say, everybody, you need to take your watches off now. Um, and we just stopped the study. Um, and so, you know, that's one extreme example where we were in the middle of a study and the product just gets pulled from market. That is rarer in large companies, um, you know, that, that aren't releasing sort of um, things that were developed by startups. Um, but it's still a risk that we're always running, right? So it is something that we are at the mercy of the technology developers. Um, you know, the, the beauty of wearables is that the industry seems to really have taken hold. So we don't think that overall the wearables industry is going anywhere anytime soon, um, but the individual technologies, we do have to be really careful about what we choose. We're speaking of the wearables industry, like it's a very established thing, but looking back, let's say 10 years, ago, maybe 20 years ago, the, the lines between uh, like a device like a phone and a digital health device were very, very sharp. Now the lines are getting much more blended. I, I mean, I can even consider my iPhone a digital health device because it tells me a lot of different health statistics uh, on a daily basis. What kind of, you mentioned before that a lot of these aren't, aren't regulated by the FDA. What kind of regulation does exist if you wanted to um, put out a, a digital health device? Um, and what sort of additional uh, regulation do you think needs to exist? Yeah, so, so, you know, the FDA is working really hard to try to get up to speed with all of this sort of rapid technology development. Um, so th there are some different classifications by the FDA of what is considered sort of a, a wellness device versus what is considered to be an FDA regulated product. And then we have this further level of complication that there's software and hardware, right? And so the FDA does have this category called SAMD or software as a medical device, um, where you can actually consider that the software itself needs to be regulated. But what's interesting when we talk about a lot of the existing devices is that software is, is um, sort of critical to their functioning. And if you change the software, 
that can change the data that comes off of them and how it gets interpreted. So, you know, one of the big pushes that we've been making is that this combination of software and hardware needs to be considered as an integrated product. Um, and so I think we're seeing the FDA moving more toward that direction of software updates to any existing product need to sort of be clearly defined and regulated. Um, but it, it's, it's certainly a challenge, right? And I think a, a really interesting example of devices um, being regulated is if we think about the Apple Watch, how it has this AFib detection algorithm that is FDA approved um, to detect atrial fibrillation. But the Apple Watch also has these other features that are not FDA approved. So it's the same device and part of it is FDA approved and part of it is not. So how that's, do you explain that's funky. that? Yeah, how do you explain that to the common consumer, right? Like you yeah. say, well, this is, it's detecting your sleep, but that piece is not FDA regulated. So it, 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 does a consumer have to take the different pieces of information from the same device uh, with different sorts of levels of confidence? I, I mean, the answer is yes, but how capable are we as a society of really understanding that? I think right now it, it, it's very confusing. It's confusing to me and I work in this space every day. I mean, yeah, spe speaking of like just all the sensors that an Apple Watch has now, I mean, I think they've recently come up with like blood oxygen saturation, just all these crazy things that I think five or 10 years ago, people would have never imagined wearable devices would be capable of. So it's sort of like touching on just the ability, the sheer ability to monitor all these different physiological signals from individuals while also incorporating perhaps other health information. There's obviously a lot of like upside to this. What downsides or risks do you see to this like massive revolution that's happening? So I think there's there's a lot of parallels with um, what we're seeing in AI, what we're seeing in genomics in terms of ethics, privacy, security, um, just regulatory in general. Um, there's a lot that needs to be decided kind of where the line is on um, what it means to own or share data and what is allowed to be done with that data and by whom. Um, so, so there's a lot of tricky pieces there. And then also um, how well do these need to perform, right? So a lot of times we find that we hold machines to a much higher standard than we hold humans to um, for better or for worse, because in, in, in some ways we want to make sure that the, the methods that we're programming are very robust, but we also have to understand that there's a trade-off there that if the status quo also is not very good, then if a machine can perform just a little bit better, but still makes mistakes, we're still doing better than we were doing before. And that concept I think can be really hard um, to grasp, to say, I, I acknowledge that my AI algorithm is going to make mistakes and that that's going to be okay because a human in the same situation or a similar situation would also make mistakes. So learning how to toe that line, I think there's a lot to be done there. I think that's interesting because that's true not only for like wearables, but just for like, you know, like, like Tesla, for example, like, right. I mean, people, when there's like an accident um, with a car, like a self-driving car, people, you know, there's a huge like news. It, it, um, yeah, it's in the news. Yeah. But it's like, even if it's like way better than what humans would be able to do, there's still like a huge uproar. That's interesting. And then, you know, just another quick comment. I think it's kind of crazy to think about like, or maybe not so crazy now that, um, 
even with devices like wearable devices that are not invasive at all, right? I mean, not your conventional idea of invasive, they're literally just on your wrist. There's so many risks associated with them just because of the amount of data that they can capture, just like being on your wrist. I don't know, that just, when I think on that, it seems a little bit crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, the Apple Watch hand-washing algorithm, for example, it uses sounds, right? So it uses one of the, the features in that algorithm, it's the wrist movement and it's also the sounds. So, you know, when we start to think about the sensitivity of this everyday monitoring, I think there's real reason for concern about how this data is collected and how it's used and and you know considering the trade-offs of the benefits to society of potentially catching diseases early or um you know getting interventions to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get them and understanding that there's some risk associated with that as well that it's not going to just be a clear straightforward yes or no there's there's always these trade-offs it's it's very tricky and with the comment you made about uh, how different software uh, features on the same device can be FDA approved or not, my first thought was, wow, okay, there needs to be this massive communication between these companies making the devices and collecting and harvesting all this data and the consumers, which obviously isn't happening, not only in, in, um, in health data, but for example, social media as well. People have no idea what, how much of their data is being um, harvested and sold to, I guess, the highest bidder. Um, if you were given the power to make any regulations or laws um, over how this data is collected and, and used, what do you think would be the most important or the first thing that you would do uh, to keep consumers, I guess, informed and safe? Loaded question. <laughs> ah, this, is a, this is a really tricky one because I think that we struggle as a society with the level of education around computation and around data and understanding what it all kind of means and is capable of. And so I, I think we would struggle to get regulations in place that would be really effective without having educational initiatives to make sure that people could understand the trade-offs because it is, it's, it's always going to be a trade-off. Um, and, and making sure that we can develop sort of regulations that support that trade-off to say, I know I'm taking a risk because I think this benefit is worth it. And allowing individuals to be able to make that decision means they need to be educated. Um, so I think we, ha we have a challenge on our hands, that's for sure. All right, so switching gears a little bit, just asking like a more general question, you know, looking back on your career, um, it's clear from your research that, you know, you're obviously a very curious individual. Do you, how, do you think that your motivation for doing BME research, you know, one of the things that I love about BME is there's just so many reasons to want to get involved, right? I mean, from the, medicine, the medical aspect of helping people to just how cool it is. Um, have you found that your motivation for doing the research that you do has changed at all over your career? Um, was it different when you were doing wet lab research versus when you do dry lab research? Or has it sort of just sort of stayed the same and you're just in it for the same reasons? I think like Becky pointed out at the beginning, um, being able to see products that I'm working on have a real impact in my lifetime, I think is a really exciting prospect. And one of the challenges is that we really need people who are passionate without seeing that um, link because that basic research needs to be done or else we wouldn't have so many of the technologies that we have today. And everything that we work with is based off of people having done that basic research. Um, so, you know, 
I, for me personally, I do get a lot of inspiration from seeing work out there in the day to day. Um, and, you know, and, and seeing that problems still exist, you know, problems, I guess, that, that it feels like should be very addressable, um, I find very motivating. Um, because, you know, it seems like if there's a problem and we can develop the solution, let's develop that solution and make that problem go away. It's obviously not that simple, but uh, it is what, what keeps me interested in, in BME and keeps me going. Absolutely. It's it, the, like, like Rowan saying with BME, it's like you're doing really, really cool science, which is cool in and of itself. But also you can really feel good about what you're doing because like the work you're doing, you're, you're like impacting so many lives. And it's just, I think, a really, really cool field as you were mentioning. I guess switching gears again, you described a lot of your uh, different roles that you play, um, a professor, researcher, mentor. How do you stay balanced in all of this? And even throughout your, even throughout your career um, in the long term, right? Uh, PhD, a postdoc, a professor, it's very uh, tolling positions. Um, how do you continue to stay uh, engaged and not, and not burnt out? I think balance is really a myth. Um, you know, it's, it's trade-offs again, you know, like there are some weeks where work is very busy and, you know, if I'm writing a grant, then I'm, I am during all hours of the night sitting at my computer and, you know, there are weeks, the beauty of academia is there are weeks that slow down a little bit and, you know, in the summer, I'm not teaching. So it's a little bit more relaxed and I get a little bit more time with my family. Um, so it it's definitely not kind of this sort of uh, blend where it's always 50-50 and it's always, um, you know, work during this time and home during this time um, or this type of work during this time and this type during the other, but it's more of kind of looking at it over time and seeing that things are kind of balancing out. Um, and it's an ongoing challenge to, to try to fit it all in. Um, I think academia is tough in that way. So there's a lot of benefits that you get to do things that are exciting to you, that you're passionate about. And it's, it's a very demanding um, field. So it's just, you know, in some ways your hobby is also your job a little bit. And that can be helpful because it keeps you passionate. Um, and even when it's taking time away from something else, um, you're doing it because you love it. And, and so, I don't know. I think everybody has a different way of kind of trying to get that all aligned. Yeah, I like how you describe, it's kind of like a rolling average balance that you're striving for, not necessarily in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, exactly. You mentioned hobbies. We did a little bit of uh, research before and I saw somewhere that you like scuba diving. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> can, can, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got into that and if you still uh, scuba today? Yes. Um, so I grew up in Florida um, and I started scuba diving with my dad when I was, as soon as I could get my license, basically, I think I was 14. Wow. Um, yeah. And um I went to sea camp, which was a, a summer camp where you could scuba dive and sort of, it's kind of like science about the ocean. I, I was very much on the fence whether I was gonna go for marine biology, um, but BME was a little more attractive, I guess, in some ways. Um, and and yeah, we've um, I've been kind of a, around the world in a lot of places. Um, my husband and I have scuba dived in 
Thailand and Indonesia and lots of different islands. So um, it's just, it's fascinating. It's so fascinating what you can see under, under the water. It's a whole different world. Wow, I've never been scuba diving, so I definitely need to. Neither, neither have I, but it's it's on my. Can you list start with snorkeling and then? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sorry, out of curiosity, what does it take to get your scuba license? Um, there's a course you can take, um, and you sort of learn about the equipment and um, learn all of the the risks and and ways to kind of mitigate those risks. Um. And um, there's kind of different levels also of, of certification. So to get sort of an open water certification, which means that you can put on scuba gear and kind of go out with a, a group, um, the barrier to entry is not that high. I've heard of people doing it on one week vacation. So um, I, I would maybe not recommend that. I think that the more in-depth course makes you feel more comfortable in the water. Um, but, but yeah, I, I encourage people who are interested to check it out. It's a lot of fun. Definitely for our listeners, if, you're, <laughs> if you want to get into scuba diving, it's great advice. Um, and as we wrap up, we usually ask our guests two sort of rapid fire questions. The first is um, what's like the last book you read or a book that you would recommend? So I just listened to two books. I, I don't read the books anymore. I listen, um, I listen to... <laughs> The Vanishing Half and She Said, um, and they were both really interesting. Cool. Do, do you do you mostly read uh, fiction or nonfiction? It depends. Uh, I read I read a mix. Um, I I've been involved with a book club recently that's gotten me into some of the sort of more more variety of books. Um, so The Vanishing Half was one with the book club. And then um, I don't know how, but I seem to have this Audible app that I don't remember paying for, but it pops up on my phone. So, um, and it suggests books to me. And so when things pop up that look interesting, I, I go for it. But I also do keep this running list of books that people recommend. So I have um, a notepad on my phone that, you know, anytime somebody says, oh, you've got to check out this book, um, I add it to my list. And when I'm out of a book, I, I just go and I pick one off the list. Yes, that's kind of what we're trying to do with the with this podcast. We have been asking all of our guests this question. So we have this really cool running list of uh, books that people are recommending. Uh, our next, uh, I guess, silly rapid fire question is: What is your go to um, like coffee drink? Are you a coffee or tea drinker? Um, these days, I'm more of a, a tea drinker. Um, I was a big coffee drinker. I actually have anxiety that I've been, um, you know, dealing with over many years. And, you know, I like to talk about this a lot because I think a lot of people have, you know, similar struggles that a lot of times we're not really open about. And so I think, you know, coffee drinking is a really obvious segue for me because I found that the caffeine would actually make me more anxious. And the more that I would cut out the caffeine, the better I felt. So, um, you know, it's hard to give up caffeine because it's like when I'm, I'm tired in the afternoon, I want to just dive in and have a cup of coffee. And I know that I will wake right up and work really well. But for me, it's not worth the trade-off to, to feel anxious. Um, so now I go for decaf tea, mostly. Every so often, I might go for some green tea um, just to get a little bit, but not too much caffeine. Awesome. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, We really, really enjoyed this. Absolutely. 
Um, this is great. Thank you for having me. Wow, based on the conversation, I think I'm really excited to see what Dr. Dunn and her team comes up with next in terms of applying wearable technologies to track and diagnose diseases. Yeah, that was really fascinating to hear her take on both wearables in general, the regulatory process, how her career started. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks so much. And you know this feel. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you know, like, comment, subscribe. You know, we're not on a YouTube channel, so just kidding. You can review. <laughs> no, I think you can still like, comment, and subscribe. You can like by giving us five stars and leave a review. Um, and you can also head over to our Instagram page at after double underscore office hours. We're going to try to start posting more content, not just when we publish an episode, but highlights from previous episodes. So definitely head over there and f follow that. And we will keep you guys updated. Just to give you a little preview, we definitely want to have some audience interaction here. Uh, we have some really cool guests coming up and uh, we'll let you know uh, via Instagram opportunities for y'all to ask questions that you may have um, for people that you're interested in. Yes, we're always looking for more recommendations for people who you guys want to hear and for questions that you guys want to ask. So like Rowan said, uh, send us a message, send us a DM, leave a comment, and we would love to hear from you. So if you guys are still listening at this point, we will catch you on the flip side.